Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In a few moments, I'll start reading in verse 14 as we walk through the word together this morning. Bit of an introduction, though, before we, before we get to that. There is a crisis of fatherlessness in America. And you've likely heard statistics like this. Uh, 70% of long-term prison inmates grew up without a father in the home. Young men who grew up in homes without fathers are twice as likely to end up in prison as those who came from a two-parent home, even when other factors like, like race and income and parent education and socioeconomic level, all those things are evened out. They're still twice as likely to end up in prison. One professor who specializes in the effect of fatherlessness adds other statistics. Uh, 63% of youth suicides. 90% of all homeless and runaway children. 85% of all children who exhibit behavioral disorders. 71% of all high school dropouts. 85% of all youths sitting in prison and so on all have fatherlessness in common. And he defines fatherlessness this way. It's not defined as children with deceased fathers, but rather absent fathers. Men who are absent physically, emotionally, and spiritually from the lives of their children are everywhere contributing to these pathologies that we just described. Men, your, your children need you. They need you to be active, involve fathers. They need you to spend time with them. They, they need you to eat with them. They need you to talk with them. They need you to open the word with them. Do they need mothers? Of course. And are children of single mothers destined to a life of crime and destruction? Of, of course not. That's not what we're saying. But, but what we're saying is that Fathers matter in the lives of their kids. But you might be wondering, why, why are we yelling at fathers today? I thought we just did that on Father's Day, right? Why are we talking about this today? Well, it's because this passage we're about to read uses the language of fatherhood to describe the, the process of discipleship. As Paul describes his, his heart for the Corinthians and how he has sought to help them grow in Christ, you'll notice the language he uses is language that is of a spiritual father to his children. And so as we see how a godly father should interact with his kids, it mirrors how discipleship happens within the body. And not just discipleship of like men with younger men or women, but, but the same principles of, of an older woman who seeks to help a, a younger woman, of even a, a college student who helps a younger college student, a, a young adult that is helping to disciple a teenager. It's these same principles that we see exemplified in, a, in an ideal father relationship, but lived out in countless other relationships within the church. We read this now, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere, everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. 
For the kingdom of God is not consistent words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? Seeing here four, four ways that a, that a father interacts with his children, that a, that a father maybe should interact with his children, that mirrors the way discipleship should happen within a local church. The first we see is that fathers warn without intending to shame. And in each of these, perhaps you could have an asterisk of fathers should, right? They, they should. They should warn without intending to shame. Look at verse 14. So I do not write these things to shame you, but to, you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. What things is he talking about? Well, glance your eyes up a few other verses. There's a passage that we looked at last week. If you look back at verse 6, he talks about how he's applying these principles of these first few chapters to himself, but, but he's confronting pride and arrogance among the Corinthians. So he says in verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He's confronting their pride and their arrogance and boasting. And he uses even sarcasm to do it. He says in verse 8, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. He says, I wish you actually were kings, but you're not. And, And then he describes, not in sarcasm, but in very frank language, his own experience of suffering. And so now in verse 14, he says, I'm not, I'm not saying this to shame you. Doesn't mean that they weren't feeling ashamed, but that wasn't his goal. Fathers are warned not to provoke their children to anger in Ephesians 6 4. Doesn't mean they don't correct them, but they should try to do it in a way that the goal is not public, dis- public ridicule and, and shame. A good father should warn his children if he sees them heading down a destructive path. And that's the idea behind admonish, verse 14, where it says he is admonishing them as beloved children. Admonish means to, uh, to put in mind with the goal of correcting. It implies that something is wrong that needs to be corrected. But the goal is not shame. The goal is maturity. The goal is transformation. Person being corrected may, may feel some shame in that, but that's never the goal. Think, think about this in a uh, scenario that you know a father might encounter. Uh, imagine it's a, it's a holiday of fa- family gathering, and the teenage daughter uh, is on her phone the whole time. It, this is a I know a totally unrealistic example, right? But just bear with me for a moment, okay? Imagine she's on the phone the whole time, and and the father sees a problem with that. Well, he could publicly shame her before the family, and that might get her. She might put her phone away, but, but there's that intense shame coming along with that. Or he may look for a way to pull her aside and say, honey, I don't know if you realize, but grandma kind of wants to talk to you, right? And she's right here, and if you'll put your phone away, it shows care for her. And she may feel embarrassed by that. Not, even if dad did it in all the right ways, she may think, ah, oh, you're right, I, I shouldn't be on my phone in this, in this setting. So there's a sense of shame that she's feeling, but that's not the dad's goal, right? The goal is to correct her behavior, to, to, to see her behave in a way that would be loving towards her family. The home ought to be a learning environment where things like that are taught. Well, likewise, the church ought to be a learning environment, but the goal is not shame, right? The goal is not shame as an end goal itself. The goal is maturity, Christ-like maturity, and yet sometimes when 
somebody corrects us, even if it's done in all the right ways, we might feel embarrassed. But that ought never to be the goal. If the goal becomes shaming people as an end in itself, that is, a, is an abusive relationship of a type. But at times we do need to be admonished. We need to be warned, and we need to warn one another. Romans 15, 14 says this is something that the body does. Not, it's not leader down to everybody else. It's one another. Romans 15, 14 says we ought to admonish one another. We ought to warn and correct one another. And this passage helps us to see it ought to be done in a way that's not intentionally shaming. How do we do that? How do we do that? I'm going to give you two principles. There's, there's others we could look at, but I want to just look at two that explains how we can do this in a way that corrects, but doesn't needlessly shame. Romans, or Proverbs 18, 13. It says, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. This is speaking to the one who is trying to correct or warn another, but does so without hearing, meaning without listening, without trying to find out what's going on, what's behind this particular issue, and just kind of jumps in and starts giving correction, giving counsel. And it says when we do that, we're acting foolishly and and shamefully. Instead, what we ought to do, if we're concerned about something we see in another's life, and we feel like it needs to be admonished, it needs to be warned, it needs to be corrected, we want to make sure that we We have all the needed data. So somebody who maybe consistently shows up late to things that they've committed to, they have dropped other commitments. Maybe somebody who you notice a dynamic with their husband or wife. There's conflict there. And you might be ready to just kind of drop in with some words of wisdom. Those words may be appropriate. That may be what they need to hear. But there might be more behind that that you don't know about. So asking questions, trying to find out what's What's going on in their life that has led to this, trying to get some more of the backstory, that can help us learn to admonish without needlessly or intentionally shaming. Another would be to, to look to confront in private whenever possible. Matthew 18, 15, uh, verse 8, or the first part of that verse anyways, says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Just like a a dad ought to look to, whenever possible, correct his children in, in private, not to make a show of it before others. So if we're talking to somebody else about sin, we ought to look to do it in private whenever possible. Now, of course, this passage goes on to say if they don't respond, you might need to take another. If they still don't respond, you might need to involve the whole church body. So that's growing amounts of kind of being public. But the goal is not to be public about it. The goal is not to shame. The goal is to help them grow, to correct them out of love and and care. So the first thing we see here, uh, using fatherly language to warn without intentionally shaming. Next, we see that fathers ought to correct when they do out of love. Correct out of love. The end of verse 14, he says, I admonish you as my beloved children. For if you, have count, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So as to emphasize even more that the goal is not shame, he's referring to them as beloved children and affirming his fatherly care for them. Uh, A father's duty is affection, not just correction. A father's duty is affection, not just correction. If, If the only time children hear from their dad is when he's bringing down the hammer of correction, that is all they will associate him with. 
On the other hand, if fathers build into the relationships with their kids as they, they spend time together and they play games together, they go on walks together, they make late night ice cream runs when mom is asleep, right? They do all these things and they, they build these relational bridges with kids. And then when there's a need to correct, the kids know it's coming from a place of affection. It's the same when it comes within the body of Christ. You've probably heard the statement. It's almost a, a cliche statement because of how often it's used that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's the idea behind this. Do people know that you really care about them? Whether it's somebody in your Bible study, somebody in your group of friends, whether it's, whether it's somebody on a, a shepherding list from one of the elders or the deacons, do, do they know that they're cared for? Verse 15, as it describes these countless tutors in Christ, yet only one father, he's using a, an analogy that would have been familiar to his original audience. It was common for a family to have a tutors, a, a fair translation, a guardian might be another one, that is either a servant, perhaps even a slave within the home that would oversee the, the care of a child. They, they would take them to and from uh, school. They, they, would, they would monitor them. They would even discipline them. But they could not replace the father. There might be countless tutors in that child's life, but only one, only one father. And he says, that's what I am to you, as he writes to the, to the Corinthians, because of the gospel, because he first shared Christ with them and they responded to it. So he's just once again affirming his care and affection. Third, he says that fathers model what their children should imitate. They model what their children should imitate. Look at verse 16. It says, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. The word for imitator is where we get our word mimic from. Be imitators, be mimics. Follow my example. Uh, vocationally, sons, that's what sons would do. They would follow in the example of whatever their father did up until really kind of the Industrial Revolution. That's Almost every culture in the world, that's kind of how it worked. Like, sons, you would do what your father did. If your father was a baker, you would be a baker. If he was a farmer or a shepherd or a carpenter, that was what was expected, is that you would do that. So, young men, your, your career track would be whatever your dad did. So think about what your dad does. There was no career counselor involved in this, right? That is just what your life would be. That was assumed. And so, likewise, he says to them, I'm, I'm your father spiritually. I, imitate me. Follow my example. Even more, though, than vocationally, fathers are to model the behavior that they want to see in their children. Uh, far more is, is caught than taught. Kids will watch how their father loves their wife, loves, loves his wife, how, how he asks for forgiveness when he does wrong. That will teach far more than a father telling his child, you need to forgive, you need to ask for forgiveness, if he, if he models it. A father ought to be able to say to his kids, imitate me. Even if he's going to be an imperfect example, a flawed example, he ought to be able to say, imitate me, follow me. And he ought to say that as I follow Christ. Flip, flip a few pages probably to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. This language comes up again, and it explains what's meant there, where he says, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul is not trying to make little mini-Pauls, right? He's trying to make followers of Christ. 
But he's saying, I'm, I'm trying to follow Christ, and I invite you to, to follow me as I do this. This is what a good parent does, and this is essential to the process of discipleship. Uh, Craig Blomberg, in, in writing on this passage, he, he says this, progress along the road to sanctification, sanctification meaning coming more like Christ, set apart more to Christ, demands that new believers have consistent, positive, mature Christian models to imitate in all aspects of daily life. This in turn implies that more mature Christians must make themselves accessible and transparent to younger believers around them. Growing as a follower of Christ requires seeing models that are doing that and that are living it out. Not not just hearing it taught, not just reading books about it, but, but seeing it in real life. few years ago, I was having a conversation with a couple close friends. One was serving as an elder at a church, um, and, and another was serving as a missionary in a difficult country with not, without a lot of believers. And, and my friend who serves at an elder at a, as a local church said, hey, my church has this great program where we, we send boxes of seminary supplies uh, over to, to countries that maybe don't have access to that to provide good teaching where they can read these books. They call it like a seminary in a box. And my other friend who's a missionary said, I mean, of course that's great. We, we need teaching. But what the people on the ground are telling me what they really need is people to come over and, and live it. Like, we, need, we need men that will come over and, and show, how do you love your wife? We need women that will come over and show, like, how do you raise your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? We need families that will model for us how a church is supposed to function. How are we to resolve conflict of course they need to read about that in the Word, and they need to be taught about that. But they were saying, we, we need to see it. And until we see it, it's hard to know how to do it. That's why in the same way here, Paul is saying, imitate me. Paul is teaching over and over and over again, but he's saying, imitate me. This is what we need. We need examples to follow. And this is not an isolated thing, but it's a principle that comes up over and over in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, speaking to elders of a church in particular, it says you're not to lord over your authority, lord your authority over those allotted to your charge. There is authority, but it's not to be lorded over, but prove to be examples to the flock. The, one of the main ways that an elder can influence the church is by example. And that's a qualification of an elder is to be able to be an example. In Philippians 3.17, Paul, the same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, says this, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He says, I'm giving you an example. Join in following it. And observe there's others that are doing this too. It's not focused on him. He's not saying, again, I'm trying to make many Pauls. He's saying there's others that are doing this. Observe them. Notice them. Walk according to that pattern. Live according to that pattern. He'll say in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, having so fond an affection for you, we see this as well, affection, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, not just content, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. This is how disciples are made, disciples of Christ are made, is by having examples to follow. Uh, I came to Christ near the end of high school, so I came to college as a pretty new believer, and so formative for me was just spending time with older believers that were a little bit further along than me. So a lot of Friday nights, I was over at Kevin Indiana Pettit's house, and we'd have dinner, and I would just, I could just watch. 
Like, how does Kevin interact with his wife? How, how do they parent their kids? How, how, how do they structure family life? I could, I could see it, not just be taught about it. There's another family, Jim and Leah Otto, over at their house a lot of Sunday afternoons, and again, just watching. Another friend who was a single guy, but about 10 years older than me, learned from him how to, how to, how to budget to the glory of God, how to handle money in a way that honors the Lord, uh, because he was doing that, and I could learn from him. That's the way the body of Christ functions. But what does this type of ministry require? If we were to have a church that's like that, what does it require? Let me tell you three things. It takes accessibility, teachability, and durability. Here's what I mean. It takes accessibility because we have to have lives that are accessible to others. right? If our own lives are just kind of silos where we come and go, but our time is spent kind of in our own little circle, perhaps of close family and friends, and it's never available to others, how can we do this? How can we call people to follow our imperfect example? But it also requires teachability on the side of those who are wanting to learn, to, to be willing to be corrected, to be willing to learn. And it takes durability because inevitably people will offend one another at times. Somebody will drop a careless comment. Somebody will cancel an activity. There'll be a personal disagreement. And so there must be durable relationships there. I think sometimes we, we love the idea of other people more than we actually love other people, right? It takes durability to work through those things. Don't be afraid to seek this out. Don't be afraid to seek these type of relationships out. Don't be afraid if you're a, a younger mom and you're, you're wondering, how, how do I parent this tyrant of a toddler that the Lord has given to me in my home? And maybe you've read parenting books and you've watched messages, but you still think, I just don't know what to do when my child does, I don't even know what to describe this as, whatever they're doing, right? And don't be afraid to reach out to a mom who's maybe 10 years down the road from that. And you see the way their kids are turning out. And not, not perfect kids, but you see them working diligently with them. Don't be afraid to say, hey, would you, would you just come over and hang out with me for a little bit? And just give me some ideas and, and kind of watch what happens and help me to know how to respond um, in, a, in a right way. Um, sometimes we need to take initiative there to, to pursue out these type of discipleship relationships. As the passage goes on, Paul explains that he can't go personally right then. He hopes to soon, but he's sending Timothy, sending Timothy to this very thing. Verse, six, verse 17, it says, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He says, Timothy's going to come, and he's going to do this. He's going he's to remind you what I teach. He's also going to remind you of my ways. He's going to be a model that you can follow, an imperfect model. Only Christ is the perfect model, but a, a model to, to follow. Friends, this is why we need each other. This is why I grow concerned that, that because of COVID and the need to kind of pause services sometimes and watch from home sometimes, and sometimes that's a very wise and valid decision that we could become accustomed to that. So that when, when that's no longer on the table, we still kind of prefer the isolation of our own homes and, and watching a screen. Even if the content is the same, the stuff that you're getting is the same, but we, we miss those relationships with one another. 
Um, I, I fear that. I, I do. I, I fear that with the inconvenience of COVID now, that, that things are canceled and then resumed and there's awkwardness sometimes as you come in and stuff is different, that we, we just kind of say, oh, I'm just going to give up and it's easier just to kind of do my own thing. It, it makes this type of ministry that we're talking about impossible when we don't have relational connections with each other. So I know this is a weird time right now. I know there's people watching from home that it's a very good decision for you to watch from home and during this season. Um, but we just, we must not become accustomed to this and, and think that this is kind of the normal way the church is to function. So there's a modeling, an imitating. And, and then fourth, what we see is that fathers discipline when needed. Fathers discipline when needed. Father who only ever speaks encouraging words, but never corrects, never disciplines, falls short of his responsibilities as a dad. And likewise, Paul, as he writes him here, he says, some have become arrogant. This is verse 18. As though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. That's holding it loosely. I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? It's a reference to discipline. Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. We see in Proverbs speaking about, about literal fathers. Parents more broadly. Proverbs thirteen twenty four, He who withholds his rod is a reference for discipline. Hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. It's an expression of love. It doesn't mean a father loves the act of punishing. I hope, I hope you don't love the act of punishing. But he loves his son. He loves his daughter. And so he's willing to go through it and, and, and to do so diligently. Not, not when he feels like it or not. When he's sufficiently annoyed. But diligently. Paul says that's the same thing when it comes to a local church. He loves this church in Corinth. He's pursuing them. He's warning them. And he wants their good. And so he says, when I, when I come, I, I hope it's with spirit of gentleness. But if I need to discipline, I, I will because I, I care about you. You're my beloved children. They've been arrogant. We've seen that throughout these four chapters. They've been focused on performance, on rhetoric, on words, on human wisdom, on being appealing and acceptable to the culture, not on substance, the power of the gospel. Notice here he says, verse, verse 19, when to come and not hear the words of those who are arrogant, but their power, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What's that talking about? It's language he used earlier. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 uh, and 18, when he began this section, uh, the fourth chapter section on, on division within the body, he uses the language of power here. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, which is what they were trying to do, so that the word of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the the power of God. It's the power of God to, to save. It's the power of God to, to transform a person so that their life is more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And so he says, when I come, that's what I want to see. 
Says, I'm, not, I'm not coming to hear your, your words, talk is cheap. I'm coming to see is the power of the gospel being shown and people coming to Christ and people being changed by the work of the gospel in their lives. He says, that's what I want to see. He says, if I, if, I, if I need to, if I come and I see these persistent patterns of sin, there'll, there'll be discipline. And actually that discipline comes up in chapter five, the very next section we'll look at. But he says, I, I don't want to come that way. Just like a father that loves his child and he hears as he's away during the day that there's been a, a ruckus at home. And he says, I, when I come home, I, I don't want to discipline. I will if I need to but I hope it's changed by the time I get there so that I can just embrace you, right? And he's just saying the same thing here. Well, as I wrap up, though, I just want to clarify something here. This whole section has been directed towards those who are, who are already Christians, who are already believers, and are needing to grow, to have an influence of a fatherly-type figure a more mature believer that can help them grow. But, but they're already in the faith. Because Paul says, I, I, I write to you, those who become my children through the gospel. And so I want to clarify what the gospel is. And this, this entry point, this, this beginning of the Christian life. And Paul does that very thing a few chapters later, in chapter 15. So we've been in chapter 4, but in chapter 15, he, in very succinct terms hits at the, the, the heart of the gospel. As I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are, you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I'm just going to make a few observations here about the gospel that we see in this passage. The gospel is God's divine plan. It's God's plan. It's not a random circumstance or occasion of events. It is something that God said ahead of time that Christ would die according to the scriptures and be raised according to the scriptures. We have countless passage after passage, more than 700 years before the time of Christ, saying this is exactly what was going to happen. Here's when he would come. Here's where he would be born. Here's what his life would be like. Here's what his death would be like. It was according to Scripture. It was according to God's plan so that we could anticipate it, so that we could see that it's valid. The gospel is a historical event. It was according to Scripture, but it's a historical event. It's not a myth to teach a truth. It's not a legend. It's not a spiritual reality. Jesus really did die. He really did laid in the ground in a tomb. He really did rise with a real body and ate fish with his friends afterwards. You're, here's why this matters. Your, your hope is anchored in a historical event. You ever think about that? It's not just some neat things that we kind of say or sing about on a Sunday morning that's kind of subjective or a feeling or something. There is a historical event, death and resurrection of Christ, that our faith is built upon, that we are trusting in, that our hope is in. It's a historical event. The gospel is a divine achievement. It says here that Christ died for our sins. He achieved this. He, 
He covered our sin by substituting himself. It's not that his death was merely a good example for you to then follow that example of loving people in a sacrificial way. He achieved this. He accomplished this. He did die for your sins. There's a massive problem that lies behind the cross. And the massive problem is the problem of your sin and my sin. It's the problem of the wrath of God that is deserved Because of my sin. That's what made the cross necessary. So this historical event, part of God's divine plan, was necessary because God is a holy God. And our sin separates us from him and invites and deserves his just punishment. But all that was poured upon Christ. He died as a substitute. The gospel is then an offer that's received by faith. We, we see here, yes, Christ died for our sins. He accomplished this. And yet it says our response here is implied is to receive this. This is this gospel which was preached to you, which also you, you received, in which you were saved. Do you hold fast to? You believe in? These are all different terms to talk about our response It's repentance from this sin that deserves God's just punishment and belief and receiving and trusting in Christ. That's how we're saved. That's how one becomes a Christian is, is through this. And then we can grow, right? And that's where this passage comes in. Speaking to those who have done this, they've trusted in Christ. Now they need to know how to grow They need to know how to help others grow. And that's where the rest of this comes in. Let's pray.